people read the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 1, uh, 1 through 12, and they look at it, as I did, possibly, that these are just loose thoughts of Jesus. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, those, those types of things. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But there's actually something deeper going on here. There is, this, this is not just a random spray uh, to start with on 1 through 12. Jesus is targeted. Very specific. And so this has radically changed my view and my understanding. There were a couple of scholars that, uh, that I'm indebted to, and I'll put some of their stuff up here this morning. But as I look at the words, and I suddenly realized that Jesus was doing something here in these first 12 verses. That this was part of a larger picture as we go forward in the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapter 5 through chapter 7. Please pray that the lights do not go out. We get thunder there. So anyway, uh, let's, let's jump into it. So where are we talking about Jesus preaching the, the Sermon on the Mount? Well, with three chapters, uh, right here at Capernaum in the region of Galilee, right in this area right here between uh, Gesserit and Capernaum. Right in here is where scholars uh, pinpoint Jesus' location. You notice it's on the Sea of Galilee. Up here you have the Upper Jordan, you have the Lower Jordan, you have Nazareth over here. But this is the area, the region of Galilee, where Jesus comes to give the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what does that look like for us? I, I wanted to show you a picture of where scholars believe, and there's actually a church, the Church of the Beatitudes. You'll see it in the, in the background. This is the location for the Sermon on, on the Mount. That is the Church of the Beatitudes, and if you, uh, you want to do a Google search for it, you can, you can watch a YouTube video on it. Uh, but this is the location where Jesus would have preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's some interesting parallels with the mountain. It says that Jesus went up to the mountain. So probably uh, from, the, uh, from the sea there, he walked up to the top of the mountain, very much reminiscent of what Moses did on Mount Sinai. So there is, there's, uh, some scholars actually made a, a larger parallel between uh, Jesus going up to the mountain and Moses going up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And so they, they see this as, as parallel. Uh, as I study the Old Testament and the New Testament, I do realize that there was a covenant process in place, particularly um, in Exodus 19, where Moses washes the people similar to what John the Baptist did. So uh, you could reasonably make a parallel. Now, this photo right here shows Jesus facing the crowd this way. I think Jesus would have faced the crowd this way down by the sea. So this picture will, will give you an idea. And you'll notice here that um, Matthew writes, seeing the crowd, he went up to the mountains. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, rabbis, it was typical for rabbis to sit when they would give a lesson. So when the disciples saw Jesus sit, they knew instinctively, wait a minute, he's getting ready to say something. 
So they would have been, people would have been sitting there along with, with them. So uh, it, it would be like when, when we play the last song today, you know the pastor is going to come up. It's time to sit down unless he makes you stand for the entire sermon, which I won't do. But um, you would know that the pastor is getting ready to preach. So when, when the, the cue was, when Jesus sat down, the disciples knew it was time. Now, it wasn't just the disciples. There was a large crowd with him. So you would also include not only the disciples, they're mentioned here, uh, so that they were all present for this teaching, but there would have been a, a crowd, a, a large crowd. Let's say 1,000 people. Let's just say that. Well, from this location, Jesus' voice would have carried. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we don't read it like this. Blessed are the meek. What we read is this. Blessed are the meek. That he would have been yelling it so that it would have gone out to everybody. So then we read next. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Didasco. That means to provide instruction. Very much like the Apostle Paul used the same word uh, to provide instruction either formal, like in a synagogue, or informal, such as along the countryside. So in this case, Jesus was giving instructions to the disciples and to the crowd. I, I think Matthew mentions the disciples because they were the primary audience, but you had a crowd that was around Jesus. Now, what type of instruction did Jesus give? Well, there's three. There were general instructions, as, as we read Matthew 5, one, uh, Matthew 5 through chapter 7. Um, you cannot serve God and money. That's kind of a general statement. Secondly, there were specific in instructions. If somebody forces you to go one mile with them, go two. That's very specific. But what's interesting here, and, and what has captivated my heart for a week and a half is this third one and that's futuristic for example many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and Jesus said to them I never knew you I don't know who you are so there's futuristic uh, implications here so all three of these general specific and futuristics are all tied in now the question here is Pastor, you said immediately uh, in the introduction that these that this is a little bit different than what you think. I think that's true. Um, I I like what Craig Bloomberg says. The Beatitudes form an appropriate introduction to Jesus' sermon as they remind his disciples that God blesses them before he makes demands on them. The body of the sermon. The same sequence appeared at Sinai. God redeemed his people from Egypt and reminded them of his blessings before he gave them the law. So when, what we read here is a targeted audience. You're going to see as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was targeting the religious elite of the day who were very prideful, who um, believed in the Mosaic law to the point and the exclusion of Jesus being the Messiah. They held it so firmly 
in a way, in a way, I think Jesus is speaking about legalism. Although when you get into the later sermon, you find out some, some very hard sayings from Jesus. But this right up front, to me, as I read this, is an evangelistic moment. Now, I, I want you to go with me, and I, I want you to listen to what I got to say here, because I think it's important. Number one is this, acknowledging the need for salvation. Now, notice what Jesus says. And, and by the way, you see the word blessed re repeatedly here. Makedios, makedios. And that word means happy. It is an inner sense of happiness. It is not an outward happiness. Uh, Jesus is targeting something inward in the hearer that is listening to the Sermon on the Mount. He is moving inward to the heart it is a it is a happiness no matter what is going on in my life i can still be happy and this is what jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven notice here there's always a couplet there's a first saying and then there's a second saying the first saying identifies something and the second part of the couplet shows the implication of the first part so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he is talking about salvation. We look at the word poor in spirit. Numa is the word for spirit, which is talking about the inward, poor in spirit, patahos. And that means beggar or destitute. Here is what Jesus is telling the crowd right up front. He, he could have rearranged these any way he wanted, but he did not. He put poor in spirit up front. What it is, it is a moment of destitution. That is, those that will inherit the kingdom, they have to be broken inwardly. There needs to be a realization that their righteousness will not get them into the kingdom of God. Who was that aimed at? That was not only aimed at those who held tightly to the Mosaic law and believed it at the exclusion of Christ. Uh, it was targeted specifically at them. Jesus is telling them right up front, you must be destitute in your heart at the foot of the cross, which he will, he will die at. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one, Paul writes in Romans 3.10. What we have here is salvation won't come Salvation will not come. You cannot get to the happiness of heart unless you realize that you have nothing to offer. It's not, Jesus is not saying, blessed are the, are, are the poor little people in spirit. No, he's targeting the heart right up front. He attacks it. Those that listen, that believed in the Mosaic law to the exclusion of possibly Jesus being the Son of God would have been writhing inside at this point because now Jesus is targeting the heart. Brothers and sisters, until you have realized that you are in a situation that you can do nothing about, that you cannot save yourself, that you, you are destitute of any spiritual worth before God, salvation cannot come. It's no accident that Jesus put this first. He put it first because the first thing that you have to get right is your heart. 
organization. Secondly, sorrow for our spiritual condition. Jesus, now, what, what takes place here? And I'm going to go ahead and give it to you because I think it's important. What takes place over these first 12 verses is that Jesus moves us from the moment of salvation through the discipleship process into verse 12. He'll show you what it will cost to follow Christ. But he has to start with the heart first because the heart is the most important issue. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's right. And if you are broken and you realize in your heart, God, I realize that I am spiritually dark, that I am deserving of death. Well, then Jesus says at that moment, you will see the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, if you look at the word theos, here is reference to the kingdom of God. People were listening to this and thinking, he is attacking us. And it probably did not sit well with any Pharisees that were in the area or scribes that were in the area. Secondly, sorrow over our spiritual condition. Notice verse 5. Happy, that's inward, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Penzo, that means to be grievous over something. Do you see what Jesus is, you see what he's doing here? When you're in the broken condition, you say, God, I am sorry for my condition. You know what that is? That is repentance. That is repentance. For they shall be comforted. Consoled is the word, but ultimately that word means forgiven. He starts with the heart. He says, you must be broken before me. And then not only that, you must feel sorrow over your sin. You've heard me preach this, and I will not preach anything else. I believe once saved, always saved. But I will, prep, I will add something here at the end that sometimes people have what's called an emotional conversion, but not a real conversion. Jesus knows the difference between the two. One is that day that the army chaplain explained to me that I'm a sinner and needed to be saved, I felt conviction on my heart. The heart was hit first. And then I realized I need a savior. And so I asked God to forgive me. There was inward sorrow. Jesus is laying out right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is laying out salvation. And then he will transition as we go along next week. He will transition to discipleship. What, it, what it's going to look like to be a kingdom kid. That word pentho means to grieve over something, and it re- is a reference to grieving over our spiritual condition. You know, the, you know why I think most people will not accept Christ? Because they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see the need for it. And until that happens, there's no way they can be saved. 
there has to be a realization that, yeah, uh, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. That's scriptural. And you see, I want you to see, because I know all of us have, have read this, just a loose-throwing uh, teachings that Jesus did. No, Jesus is very specific. Stuart Weber agrees with me. I, that's why I like him so much. No. <laughs> Stuart Weber, this has nothing to do with feeling badly over some unha- unhappy event. This refers to the condition of the human heart. Absolutely, Jesus is attacking it. Only when we are truly sorrowful for our spiritual bankruptcy can the grace of God be introduced into the picture. Only then, when we are broken before him, can the grace of God come into our hearts. He's absolutely right. Can be introduced into the picture. It is through the grace of God that we experience joy, the happiness, and the comfort of the forgiveness that he offers. He translated that absolutely correctly. I looked it up three times. This word comforted means that he will forgive those who have been broken by their spiritual condition. I don't know if Jesus, he probably preached it just as loud as I did, but um, Stuart Weber's right. There's several other commentators said, no, no, there's, 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 there's more than just, just, uh, Uh, throwing things out there. Jesus was very targeted. I want you to look at this. Just look at it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing to offer. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are sorrowful for their condition. They will be forgiven. What happens after salvation? Jesus tells us. The very next one. Transformation begins to take place in verse 5. Happy are the meek. You cannot leave the cross the same way that you came. The cross, when you truly trust in Jesus Christ, the cross radically changed. Changes your attitude, changes your mind. I remember when I got saved, I went back to the barracks and I was telling people, and boy was I surprised at their response. What? You got religion? I said, no, I trusted in Christ. They treated me like I had the plague. You notice here that this is the, this is the transformation starts to take place. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is he talking about? For they shall inherit the earth. Do you know that's futuristic? That's futuristic. Blessed are the meek, prowos, pertaining to being gentle or kind-hearted. The Apostle John wrote in Revelation 21, he wrote this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth come down in Jerusalem. And his people walked among him those who have been transformed those who have been to the foot of the cross have received Jesus Christ now live a life of humbleness do you know when you go read the New Testament you know what one of the biggest problems is with people is pride he's all Paul is always talking about be humble 
walk in humility. Jesus is saying, look, a follower of me will walk in humbleness before God. Peter, we do not fight with the sword. Do not be prideful. And Jesus is setting, this is, this is one sign of it that a transformation has taken place. If you walk in humility, if you're kind to people, if you're gentle, this is a sign of, of transformation. Jesus says, if you want to see what a, disciple sh- what a disciple looks like, there's no room for pride. Why? Because you've already admitted your brokenness before him. You've already mourned over your sin. He has forgiven it. And so now we spend the rest of our lives walking in meekness. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Totally cultural counter to the culture that they were living in. Meekness was a sign of weakness. So Jesus said those that have been purified inwardly, they are transformed. Let me say this. Do you remember the day that you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Boy, I was I was on fire when I first got saved and then I realized that people weren't really excited about that. And as we go along our Christian walk, we it seems like we forget that newness. And we become stale. We become hard with life events. We get frustrated. Happens to me too. And and Jesus is taking us back. He's here. Uh, This is no accident. Jesus knew what he was doing. He, He said from this point forward. Pride is gone because my grace is sufficient. In a sense, we are indebted to Christ for what he did on the cross. That never leaves us. We're still under that grace. And there's no reason for me to be prideful. There's no reason for me to think that I'm better than somebody. There's no reason to think that somebody's beneath me. Jesus said, my disciples will walk not like the world we will walk radically different because the transformation has taken place at the foot of the cross now Jesus doesn't mention the cross here but is heavily implied because of what he's talking about so that's something that's number three number one was acknowledging the need for salvation blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn over their spiritual condition For God will forgive them. Number three, blessed are the meek. Those who are gentle and kind-hearted. I get it. That's hard sometimes. But they shall inherit the earth. There's, there's a day coming when the old earth passes away. Revelation 21.1. The new earth is established. And we walk with God. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. It, this, this is not just simply a sermon on the mount that the, the people that listened, they went away. Well, it's a really good sermon. Let's, we'll go home. Let's, let's, go, to the, let's go, to, go out to eat. No, Jesus is using this as a paradigm in these first 12 verses, a paradigm for how we live our Christian life. So Jesus would have expected these. That's why, I'm telling you, Google it. Google Sermon on the Mount books. There are tons of them with all kinds of different views and, 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 and ways of looking at it. But you notice what inevitably will happen once a person has humbled themselves, they felt sorry for their sin, they've asked God to forgive them of a sin, they will be comforted. It's okay. Your sins are forgiven. That's why Jesus got into trouble with all the righteous elite of the day. He forgave people their sins. People who the religious elite said, no. How could he go into the, to the house of a tax collector and a sinner and eat with them? Oh, it enraged them. That's because they've never been at the foot of the cross. They have never been poor in spirit. They are high-minded. This is what Jesus was fighting against. He was fighting against religion and how to placate that, how to get rid of it. But then after this, after this transformation takes place, poor in spirit, mourn, Blessed are the meek. At, at that point, the storm is over. They're in a saving relationship with them. We don't leave the cross the same way we came. What happens next? I think this has to do with when Jesus said, some fell among the thorns, some fell among the rocks, some fell among the thistles, some, some fell in the good soil. I think it has to do with this. This next one, and I think it's a big one. A deep desire for God takes place. I don't know if that was God or not with the thunderstorm, but a deep desire for God takes place. Happy, inward, think of that word blessed as inward. It's an inward sense of, yeah, I got it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice the couplet again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger is the word paino. And that obviously refers to a strong desire when you are hungry. Have you ever gone maybe, maybe even a full day without food and your stomach starts grumbling? Well, Take it this time in a spiritual sense. It's where you are hungry. And then, thirst, deep sow. That's the, that's the word for that, deep, deep sow, the Greek word. A strong desire for church, strong desire for Sunday school, those will come, but for righteousness, dikainosine, dikainosine, and that means doing what God requires. You see, you see where Jesus has, has taken us? 
He's taken us from a spot of brokenness before him to somebody who is now walking meekly, wanting to do what God tells them to do. Those that are watching by Facebook, let me ask you a question and everybody here. Do you have a hunger and a thirst to do what God requires? I get it. The world can strip us away. Sometimes the church can strip us away, make us lose our desire. But brothers and sisters, the, the one essential characteristic of a child of God is a desire for the things of God. And if there is no desire, I, I'm going to put it plainly. If, if there is no amount of humbleness where you can walk and say what you want to do and, and just spray it and you walk in, in, in pride and you have no desire for the things of God, I'm going to tell you, you might need to go back to the foot of the cross. And you might need to experience Jesus brand new. Because Jesus is saying it here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Once you leave the cross, a disciple of Jesus will want to do what God says to do. And how do we find out where God, what, what God tells us to do? We find it right here in the Bible. And we have the presence of the Holy Spirit saying, that's not right, that's not right. And so we should have a hunger and a desire. One commentary said we need to eat the words. Do you have a hunger and a desire? Or, or, or is it just, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and then as I live my, as I go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, won't be any remnants of Christ at all in my life. That's not what Jesus was preaching for. Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. Somebody that, 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 that is truly born of the king and they will walk in meekness. There will be no, there will be no pride, no nastiness, no uh, no unforgiving spirit in them because they realize where they've come from. So now, after that, there will be an intense desire. When I first got saved, I started going to Sunday school. I was actually four months. I didn't know, didn't know anything, but I did eventually go to church and and got hungry. I would listen to Christian music and those, those poor people in, in 1980 when I was in Germany at doing my clothes at the laundromat, I heard this young couple listening to something I've never heard of because I was into rock and roll and I was into all that stuff. Uh, and any, any, Anyway, they said, have you ever listened to Christian music? And I looked at them like they were from Mars. It's amazing what two years will do. Because now I was listening to Petra, I was listening to Striper, I was really growing in my faith, I was irritating my Sunday school teacher because I would ask really dumb questions, but he was really good to stay with me. But there was a desire within me. I think that when there is a desire within you to know more, you'll be satisfied. Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me 
when you search with me for all, with all of your heart? Is Christ the center of your life or a footnote of your life? Are the things of God kind of important? That's not discipleship. Jesus is setting the table straight here. Discipleship is somebody who walks in humility and has a desire for the things of God. No, nothing will stop them from getting the things of God because they hunger and they thirst. I watched um, Bear Grylls last night. He's a survival expert. Of course, I watch those guys all the time. But uh, he, he, he's, his main thing is you've got to find water. You've got to have water. Actually, within three days, if you don't drink water, you will die. You can go three weeks, up to three weeks without eating food, and you're still okay. It's not the best scenario. But his main thing is you've got to find water. You've got to quench that thirst, and you've got to replenish the water and the liquids in your body. Jesus said, blessed are those, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, doing what God requires. So what does that mean? Daily prayer. Daily Bible reading. Focus on Christ. Daily dependence on him. Sometimes we flunk. I get it. I flunk too. I'm not telling you I do this perfectly. But then he says, for they shall be satisfied. Hortazo. Hortazo, I love this word. To eat one's fill. Here you go. Big breakfast. I don't do big breakfast anymore since I'm on the VA diet, but I will again sometime. Um, to me, a big breakfast would be two, two eggs over easy, bacon, sausage, hash browns, some, uh, some pancakes, maybe some waffles stacked three high, and you just eat it, right? After that, you're full. Right? Unless you really like it. I mean, you get full from eating all of that. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. To hunger and thirst is the only place that you'll find satisfaction. What I like about this picture is this woman is standing, looking at the world, realizing, at least as I interpret this, look at the world and all that it has to offer. In fact, Jesus was tempted by Satan on a mountain. This woman looking out over this, and I can just think, she's looking at, this is the world, and this is not what I find satisfaction in. I find my satisfaction in doing what God wants me to do because he has transformed my heart. The Pharisees might have been on board with this. This one. They might have even have mumbled under their breaths, amen. The problem is they left out the first three steps. You got to get those first three steps in order for this one. Have you ever met somebody that is religiously a zealot and wondered if they ever even knew Christ? 
That's what Jesus was attacking here. This is not, the world is not where we find satisfaction from. It is doing what God calls us to do in our daily walk with him. It is not an easy walk. It is not an easy thing, but that's what we do. We want to please God, right? That's what we want to do with our lives. We want to please God and live for him in this dark world. So let's wrap this up. Spiritual implications. Number one, true salvation comes in brokenness. Poor in spirit. Jesus says that's got to come first. Secondly, God forgives sin. Those who mourn will be comforted. That's a promise. Aren't, aren't you glad that God says when we ask for forgiveness, he will forgive us? That brings comfort to know that I have been forgiven. To me personally, when I ask for forgiveness of my sin, I know that he's there to forgive me. Number three, we live a new life. It's meekness. Contrary to the world outside these church doors, look out for number one. Be first. Throw others under the bus. That's not how we live. We live realizing that we live in the shadow of the cross. The shadow of the cross always is overseeing us because we've trusted in Christ. Number four, only the things of God will satisfy hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe those that are watching by Facebook may be here. If you've kind of drifted, this, this, is, the, this is the good news this morning. If, if you've drifted, it only takes a mournful spirit to be renewed by God. The Sermon on the Mount is very specific, very targeted. 